0: Anyone who was one of the early systems traders would, would confirm this is that when we first got started technical trading, it was like shooting fish in a barrel because there were very few people doing it. Most of the, you know, most of the people who were trading commodities were small, you know, small investors or people trading by the seat of their pants. And so just the discipline that a, that a system provided was an incredible advantage over most of the uh, traders that were, were out there. So it turned out to be very, it was very easy. I mean, almost any system would work. Uh, nowadays, things are much different. Those people are gone. The industry is dominated by systems traders. And so, you know, it's a much, it's a much different environment.
1: Now that I near 80, I realize with wistful pleasure that on many occasions, I was 10, 20, 40, or even 50 years ahead of my time. This is a quote from Benoit Mandelbrot, who certainly influenced today's guest, and where you can probably also argue that he was many years ahead of his time when he started his trading career back in the early 1970s. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged. The place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world, so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thank you so very, very much for tuning in today. For those who are regular listeners, you know that my goal with the podcast is to share the stories of some of the greatest traders in the world and to ask those questions they don't usually get asked. To help you get more clarity, confidence and courage to take your own trading or investment career a step further and today's episode is no exception. Today you're listening to episode 93 And if this is your first episode you've ever heard, you might want to go back and listen to all
0: of the earlier conversations. This is Bill Dreis, president and founder of Dreis Research Corporation, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the
1: toptradersunplugged.com website and sign up to receive access to all of them. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation, I hope. You will enjoy. Bill, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Now, what's really exciting about our conversation today is that you, in many ways, are very unique in the sense that... Not many firms in our business that has been around for more than 40 years are still headed up by its founder, not even the firm that I work for. So I just want to say upfront to everyone listening in today that it'll be worthwhile sticking around and learning from Bill's wealth of experience. But before we jump into all of the topics we're going to cover today. I just have this simple question that I try to ask all of my guests in order to appreciate the many different answers there is to this question. And it's basically how you respond when a person you haven't met before asks you what you do. How do you explain what you do, Bill?
0: Well, it's uh, <laughs> frequently difficult because most people don't have any uh, reference point. Uh, basically, I tell them I'm a commodity trader and then I you know, mention gold, wheat and uh, copper, things like that, and it, and they say, oh yeah. So, <laughs> and then I probably uh, mention that it's I trade futures, uh, and they most people might understand what that is. But beyond that, uh, and and perhaps what I do is I say, well, it's something like being a hedge fund manager, and then that helps a little bit. But it, of course, it depends on the extent to which uh, people have exposure to this kind of, uh, these kind of financial services.
1: Sure, No absolutely, absolutely. But anyway, we're gonna stay with you for, for a lot longer uh, and, and talk about your story. As you may know, I have a strong belief that you can't really understand a trader or a manager and his track record without understanding the background and the story behind it. So I'm going to start out by focusing on, on this today. So tell me a little bit about how it all got started for you. And, you know, you feel free to put some extra color on how you were as a as a young man growing up or as a kid, go back as far as you want.
0: Well, I think the uh, my pertinent history is that I... Uh... Graduated from MIT with a degree in electrical engineering, mm-hmm. and then went on to Harvard Business School, and uh, where I um, I was attracted to Bayesian decision theory, and also just had an interest in operations research. So. Uh, After I left school, I went to work for a think tank in California that was doing computer modeling of uh, Mm -hmm. strategic and tactical warfare. And that introduced me to really state-of-the-art modeling. We were doing computer modeling mostly, although uh, some of it was was being done by hand. But this was in the days we were using the most powerful uh, Air Force computers, uh, which probably were comparable to today's pocket calculators. At any rate, you know we were really operating in state-of-the-art mathematics in, in in many ways. So it was a very interesting.
1: How did you get into using Air Force computers? That sounds uh, a little bit uh, un- unusual.
0: Well, it's because of the type of work we were. We were working under Air Force contracts, and we were okay. we were uh, exploring uh, different kinds of uh, tactics in uh, missile firing strategies or you know, ground wars in Europe and that sort of thing. And we were working for most of the. The work was done by young, you know, young engineers with mathematical backgrounds, but the, the, uh, the supervisors were all were retired Air Force officers. Okay. And one of them had done some commodity trading, and he interested me, in commodities, and uh, I became aware of Richard Donchian and what he was doing, and also started reading the literature of the day. Uh, things like Edwards and McGee, and started experimenting with the idea of developing uh, a systematic trading methods. Mm-hmm. Out of that came really the ideas that, that I used to develop my first system back in the late 70s.
1: Sure. So the thing, just, just for play, to place this for, for the audience a bit, so, so leaving MIT and, and, and Howard, we're back in the 60s, am I right in, in saying that?
0: Oh, I graduated uh, from Harvard Business School in uh, 1966, and then went to work. So I went to work, uh, oh, for about three years or so in this uh, in a think tank, and then uh, after leaving there, I really focused on developing a trading system, uh, and spent several years, two or three years at least, exploring that. Most, and of course, once I got out of uh, away from the uh, think tank work environment, I didn't have access to computers. So most of the work I did was by hand, but nevertheless, I understood what it meant to be systematic. I had a big pile of CRB charts that I would go through and try out and try various things. And partly for this reason, my, my focus, and, and partly from the influence of Edwards and McGee, my focus was on what would typically understood as technical analysis, you know, heads and shoulders and triangles and trend lines and so on and so forth. And one thing that I did early on is I went through the various chart patterns that were supposed to be significant. And I decided that the only one that that really had any usefulness was a trend line and perhaps support and resistance and that all these other patterns were Essentially, like seeing, uh, you know, seeing images in in clouds or reading tea leaves, and they really had no meaning. So I focused. Uh, so in terms of designing a system, I guess my idea, the thing that was perhaps somewhat unique, uh, most of the systems that I was aware of, or at least method methods that I were aware of, were numerically based, things like moving averages. Whereas I was inclined towards trying to systematize certain aspects of technical analysis, as I say, like uh, like trend lines, and then. Use to be able to use uh, trendline breaks as 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 signals, and so I developed a system along those lines. And at some point it occurred to me and again this sort of happened out of the blue because I wasn't really aware of anything else going on along these lines. I thought gee maybe I can actually uh, manage other people's money and make and make this into a business Of course I was unaware that perhaps other people were, were doing that at the time it, but it was a it was certainly a new idea to me and a new idea I think at least uh, where I was in in the area where I was living which is the Bay Area.
1: Is that where you grew up as well?
0: Uh, no no I grew Grew up in West Texas and Kansas, went to high school in Kansas. And after I got out of school, then I had jobs in Southern California, and then I had moved from there to Northern California. So I, I just happened to be there at the time. What had a lot to do, or probably the main influence over where I lived and where I've lived since, is that I, uh, after I got out of uh, school, I uh, learned to surf, and uh, <laughs> that became somewhat of an... An addiction, which has stayed with me ever since. You know, one of the things that attracted me, I think, about commodity trading, it was something I, I thought that I could do from a lot of different places, anywhere I wanted to live, and I could live near the beach and, and have a lot of free time to, to surf. So, um, you know, having developed a system, I decided it was, it was time to perhaps learn the other side or, or learn something more about the industry. So I, uh, I got a job as a commodity broker with E.F. Hutton in uh, San Francisco, and I uh, ra- had a, raised a few clients and and traded my system as a, as a broker for for my clients. While I was there, I met some sales types, and probably about a year later, we left to form a company, Commodity Consultants, to trade managed accounts. And there was they would be the uh, provide marketing.
1: And we're back in the mid 70s now, if I'm right. Is that yeah?
0: Okay. At this point, we're, we're at uh, early 75, the, in, in the start of se- 1975. And about a year later, we split off, we reorganized, and I split the trading part off as a separate company, but we continued to work together for, uh, you know, for the next several years. At one point, I probably had, oh, I don't know, 180 clients and probably over $10 million under management, which doesn't sound like much, but in those days, it was, it was big money. And, you know, certainly among the traders I was aware of, I was probably the largest uh, for a while.
1: And how did you, because I think this is important uh, to, to for people to realize, I mean, 180 clients, even today, that's a lot, even with all the computer power we have. But back then, it must have been uh, an enormous task to to handle. How, how did you go about doing that back then?
0: That was what inspired me to get my first computer. Well, I had read the same ad in... Uh, popular mechanics that Bill Gates had read and what he did is, you know, he quit school and what I did is I went to Albuquerque and bought an Altair computer from uh, the first computer store, which was assembled by the wife of the guy who owned the computer store and brought it back because I was having the the accounting, as you imagine, the accounting, and of course this was prior to having 180 uh, clients, the accounting was becoming a nightmare. Uh, to do by hand so I thought well I really need a computer and the idea in those days that a that an individual human being could own a computer was was a miracle so I bought a uh, an Altair and brought it back but had to bring the, the hard disk back on on my lap because they were so so sensitive to uh, getting out of alignment had a teletype 33 as my keyboard uh, printer And uh, essentially put the the programs I had working with me, uh, a couple of friends of mine who also were MIT graduates. And so we, you know, we programmed the accounting into my computer and I had an accounting system that was more accurate than the brokerage firms that we were dealing with. Which is not saying much, I suppose, but, but that was really my first in, impetus to being probably one of the first, one of the earliest adopters of personal computers back in 1976. Uh, we subsequently put my system on the computer, obviously, but that wasn't, but as you said, the primary motivation because of the uh, number of clients I had was to, was to get the accounting uh, automated.
1: Sure, sure. And then you ran that for a period of time. But uh, as far as I recall from, from sort of preparing for today, there was a time where you stopped actually managing outside money, if I'm right.
0: Well, I ran, as I say, I was, I was quite successful for a while in terms of, you know, my returns and raising money. And then I went through a period where, my, where I pretty much flattened out for a year or two. Since I was using, the, I was essentially using third-party marketing. And they were representing uh, other managers, and of course, my uh, clientele tended to shift to other to other traders. So at some point, I my business ran down. It's not like it's not as if I really um, blew up or anything. It's just that uh, my clients drifted away, and and, uh, and I and I have to admit that I grew uh, a bit disappointed in say in, in my system, and and at that point, I pretty much closed. Closed my clients' accounts and just continued to trade uh, for my own account. Partly uh, so I could experiment uh, with various other approaches, and I also got interested in software development. So I sh- shifted my uh, my business focus to uh, you know writing custom software and doing computer consulting at that time. And of course, if you remember back in the you know back in the early '80s, was like the heyday of where where personal computers were really starting to take off so that in itself was a, was was an exciting time just to be involved in the in the computer industry
1: yeah no absolutely but then in, in 1991 you you decide to set up your your current uh, company what what made you refocus so to speak on on the trading and and the research and how far were you really in terms of of your research at that time compared to sort of you know what, what we're going to talk about later about how the the strategy uh, operates today
0: well, as I say, even though I moved out of the, uh, you know, out of out of managing other other money, I was, I continued to to research and uh, to do research and to think about uh, various, uh, you know, ways of approaching the markets. And one thing that caught my attention and the attention of uh, a colleague of mine that I've been working with was the work of Benoit Mandelbrot, uh, fractal geometry, and there was a book came out in. the... Well, early 80s, I think, uh, the fractal geometry of nature, and it was apparent from reading this that this had application to uh, modeling uh, the markets. In fact, Mandelbrot's first paper that he published was on the uh, on the cotton market, and that sort of that introduced the world that was in compilation. Uh, by Paul Kutner called uh, The Random Character of Stock Market Prices. That really was the beginning of Mandelbrot's career in, in fractal geometry, and, and of course, sometime later that we picked up on this, but we could see from this that, that it was uh, applicable. And of course, some another approach that was also popular at the time was the, the Elliott Wave. Uh, Robert Prechter had really you know, developed uh, a reputation by his work in, in that regard. And so one of the things we were looking at is, is the, because the Elliott wave is obviously a, a fractal kind of approach, where you have patterns within patterns within patterns, uh, we thought, well, gee, I wonder if it would be possible to, to automate the Elliott wave. Well, the short answer is no. And the, the reason is simply that if you have the kind of restrictive conditions that that are invoked by the Elliott wave, the market won't cooperate. So you've got to do a lot of. You've got to essentially uh, shoehorn the data into the model. What I found, or what I found, is that it would be. It was better to shoehorn, or or to devise a model that fit the data. And what came out of that was what what we uh, designated the fractal wave algorithm. And the fractal wave algorithm is essentially a, a method of deconstructing prices into a uh, series of fractal patterns, of, and once again, they're, they're se- it's self-similar across scale, meaning that you have a, a, sh- a short-term pattern that, that uh, can be combined into a longer-term pattern, which can be combined in a longer ter- longer-term pattern, et cetera, all of which have the same shape. And in, in fact, the the basic, the underlying pattern is what we call a zigzag, which is merely the price goes up, the price goes down, and then the price goes up again. Or obvi- there's one in the opposite direction, of course. And you can then put these zigzags together. So if you have an up zigzag, a down zigzag, and followed by an up zigzag, then you have a larger a larger scale zigzag. And then you can take that zigzag and have an up, down, and up, and then you have a larger scale. And that's that uh, forms uh, a fractal structure now, what is all this good for? essentially what what I decided to use it for was be able to mechanically specify uh, turning points in the in the price and the easiest way to think about this is is the Dow theory, which has uh, you know short term waves and embedded in longer term and medium term which are embedded in longer term waves that is so if you pick a particular uh, level of the pattern of, of zigzags, you can use those points, that is, you can use the, the lows of those zigzags to, to draw a trend line through. Or if, it's going, if the trend is going down, you can use the highs to draw a trend line through. So this takes us back to the standard Edwards and McGee type of approach. This is essentially what we used as the basis of my Trading system, the fractal wave system, which uh, I used to trade. So once this system had been uh, designed, you know, I thought, well, okay, this is this is pretty interesting. So it's time to get back uh, into the into the business. And I think through this time, I had never, I had always maintained my registration as a uh, as a CTA. So it was easy to get. Uh, back into business, so I formed a uh, a partnership with again some uh, marketing types and and off we went so I think the the attraction the reason I found this my system or the the new approach attractive was, was twofold one had to do with a, a theoretical basis, meaning that there'd been a ever since the uh, You know, the 60s when the whole, uh, there'd been this explosion of interest in the uh, financial world, especially the academic world, um, the uh, efficient market hypothesis and and the idea that the markets were random walks and so on and so forth. There'd been an ongoing uh, controversy, shall we say, between the academics and the practitioners about whether it was possible to actually you know, make money in the markets uh, by really any methodology, and of course, the academics uh, were basic. You know, with the exception of Mandelbrot, were were uh, took the position that the markets were random, and so it was futile to to uh, try to figure out a, a system. The the traders, or people out in the financial world, uh, you know, were on the other side of that, and they generally their, their argument was anecdotal. They could say, well, you know, what about Warren Buffett or what about some, you know, what about uh, various people who had demonstrated uh, success? But of course, that argument was a little bit suspect because, uh, you know, if you have enough people out there doing something, some people are going to be successful just by chance. You know, somebody's going to win the lottery uh, regardless of, of whether it's where there's chance you know and nobody expects that to be due to due to skill on the part of the so what what I was interested in was something that was shall we you know shall we say a little bit more convincing and that's what again what Mandelbrot was providing because Mandelbrot said that if you if you really if you analyze the markets and of course by by that time you know other people had uh, taken up this this approach also you find that the markets, in fact, are not random in the in the uh, in the sense of that was normally uh, discussed, but actually uh, had biases. In fact, were, the markets exhibited persistence, which meant that generally, that, that if you had trends on almost any time scale, these trends would tend to persist a bit more than you would expect over a pure random walk. And so if you could demonstrate that persistence, which you can, is, is possible using Mandelbrot's mathematics or using the fractal mathematics or, or power law uh, analysis, then you had, in a sense, a theoretical basis, a scientific basis for saying that, the market, that it was at least possible you know, to make money in the markets by some sort of a trend-following method. And then, of course, the next step was was to use that a, a similar kind of uh, rationale to actually design a trading system. And so, that's essentially what what I did is, it, is a lot of the work that I was doing was not just a matter of designing a trading system; uh, it was based upon analysis of the of, of the markets of quite a few, you know, generally the commodity markets that indicated that these markets, in fact, exhibited uh, persistence and that you know, there was a reasonable expectation that, you know, trading systems would work. And of course, this applies not just to my particular approach, it applies, I think, to uh, any kind of trading approach. In other words, the fact that, you know, say fundamental traders or somebody like Warren Buffett or George Soros or whatever, the fact that they make money in the markets, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is is for the same reason that I can make money in the markets. That is, that these markets exhibit persistence. The fact that their analysis is, is different than mine, I think, is, is of secondary importance. And the same goes with trading systems. So, so much of the focus when people are evaluating trading systems is on the particular methodology that's being used. In my opinion, there's the primary reason that, say, systems traders and commodities are are able to make money in the markets is that the market provides those opportunities. That is, it's the market that provides the returns more than the particular methodology that's imposed. And, of course, you can see that if you look at, if you compare... Uh, you know, performance, particularly among CTAs, is that you know sometimes the markets are easy to trade, and other times they aren't. And of course, that gets you into the whole idea of uh, you know every few years you hear that trend following is dead. Well, uh, no, 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 trend following is not dead. It's, it's just sleeping. You go in and out of these phases, and and it has more to do with the with the nature of the markets than it does with the vagaries of any particular system. Behind all this, I mean, this is all all that I've discussed has to do with, you know, with technical trading and and designing systems. And, of course, what I do is is purely mechanical. That is, I run my program every day and I do what the program says. I don't second guess it. I don't, you know, omit trades or anything of that nature. Obviously, the system's adjusted on a periodic basis just to sort of maintain, uh, keep it up to date. But other than that, my system has been virtually unchanged for the last 25 years. But at any rate, my view on this is that underneath the statistics or the, or the mathematics that, that, uh, describe, uh, markets are fundamentals. That is, I'm, I'm a technical trader that believes in fundamentals. And so I believe that markets, certainly commodity markets are moved by supply and demand. I believe that, uh, financial markets, uh, are are moved by economic uh, forces, most of which are fairly long-term. I would call these business cycle moves. And so this has influenced me, along with just my research, to trade very long-term. That is, I, I trade off weekly charts and I, I'm probably the, you know, one of the longer-term traders, you know, that are out there, and, and, and of course, in one sense, that originally had to do with the fact that, if you trade longer, ter- longer term, you trade less frequently, and that lowers your transaction costs, which I think is still important, even though commissions are so low these days. You're, you still have to deal with slippage every time you trade, and so. The, you know, the less frequently you trade, the less of a load there is in that regard. But I think more importantly, I discovered that for the most part, if I traded longer term, I essentially got the same you know, out of, let's, say, let's suppose I had a, you know, the typical trade or the typical trend, I should say, might be several months. Now, a shorter term trader might take uh, three or four trades out of that trend. It seemed to me that it's better just to take the whole thing, and of course, it, so you can step back a little bit and, and trade uh, less frequently, and still get the same benefit as if you were uh, trading in and out more frequently. And in fact, you, you know, you might even get more benefit because because of eliminating a lot of the the, uh, the slippage. Now, of course, to some extent, this exposes this this exposes you to a bit more. Uh, Drawdown expo- exposure because if you're trading longer term, then your stops are further back, so that means that the markets individually can move much more dramatically against you before you get out. But I find that if you're trading a diversified portfolio, then that tends to mitigate it to some extent. And also, of course, you have depending on the on the behavior of the markets. Uh, very frequently, you know, where other shorter-term traders would be getting out and back in uh, on a fluctuation in the prices, uh, I'll ride through it so that I end up coming out at, at a better place, uh, you know, after a, a pullback. So, like I say, these things are all trade-offs in, in these various approaches. But uh, I'm satisfied, certainly over time, that, that my, my risk control and my, and my drawdowns and all that are certainly uh, no worse than those that are experienced by uh, people who trade uh, somewhat short term.
1: So so in so in terms, just to, to round this off in t- time frame, I want to go back and, and ask you a little bit about some of the things you've mentioned just now. But So in terms of time frame, you still run your systems only once a week, or are they run more than once a week, but just using a weekly uh, bar for that matter?
0: I, I update the system, that is, I recalculate, once a week I have to obviously follow the markets on a daily basis because I get fills and I have to put in if I get go into a trade I need to put in the stop-loss and so on and so forth so I need to maintain it on a daily basis but no I only I only calculate orders once a week
1: Now, I want to go back a little bit. There was was a lot of information coming about, you know, Dow theory and Elliott Wave and and, and the fractals and and sort of how these things uh, play together. And also the fact that you, as you rightly said in the beginning, uh, sort of started out by looking all at sort of traditional technical analysis. But but also realize that there's a lot of subjectivity in that and 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 that's not uh, necessarily a, a good thing so automation became very important for you now back in the back in the 90s i was working in london and we were i was running a, a cta there that was a pattern recognition and it sounds without me being an expert in any of the things that you mentioned it sounds somewhat similar where we had identified a number of patterns that repeat themselves and, and so on and so forth. But what we couldn't do in the 90s was we couldn't automate that. We couldn't because it was based on some you know level of having a computer to recognize this. How and when did you manage to automate this? And... And because when you mention Elliott Wave, I think most people are familiar, a lot of people are familiar with that and they understand the one, two, three, four, five and ABC down and sort of they understand that. But when you explain it, um, at least the way I understand is that the six acts can form... You know almost like an unlimited amount of different patterns. so if you can t- touch upon sort of the the way to, to you, you manage to automate that and but also the, the the sort of the quantity of different patterns that you're you're looking for, if that can be sort of uh, drilled down a bit.
0: Well, I I normally don't think of what I do as pattern recognition in the in the in the conventional sense that is I'm not looking for heads and shoulders or sure. triangles or wedges or that sort of thing. And I and, and as I said before I I decided early on that those were meaningless. That, yeah. And so whether or not I could automate that it was you know ir- irrelevant, uh, so what I did is i defined, you know like I say early on, I decided that the only patterns that really had any usefulness at all were trend lines and uh, and support and resistance, okay. which are you know pretty fun pretty fundamental yeah and then later on, when I got into uh, uh, fractal geometry and, and again. Thinking in, in terms of the Elliott Wave and of the, of the Dow Theory, we identified the zigzag as the fundamental pattern. Now, mm-hmm. once again, that's a—it's a, a very—you can say, well, that's pattern recognition, but it's hard to imagine a more fundamental pattern than that. Sure. If—if you, if you understand what I'm saying. In other words, if—if you—if you, if you, if you try, look for something more fundamental than a zigzag, you've Got nothing. You've got an up move or a down move. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the pretty much ground zero in terms of designing it, and, and of course that's essentially the kernel or the basic pattern under underlying the Elliott wave. That is, uh, you have uh, if you have a five a five wave is is um, is a zigzag with you know up down up down up right, and a three wave is an, uh, is the basic zigzag up down up. Now the the problem with the Elliott Wave, as I said before, was that it restricted you to fives and threes, generally speaking. And if, if you actually worked, that, that's a top-down judgment. In other words, that's, that's, that's a fundamental belief or, or the fundamental structure of the Elliott wave is, is to impose that pattern onto the prices. If you go from the bottom up where you say, okay, we're going to build this up from zigzags, and, you, and, and the zigzags are determined from the price. In other words, the price goes up, and then the, pr- the price goes down, and the price goes up, right? You're not imposing that pattern. That's a pattern that the price is, that, you know, the market itself is is putting out there. Then you can obviously have you know more than more than shall we say five waves you you know they can go up and down and up and down and up and down and can do that as long as it wants and, this, and then it can turn around and do the same sort of thing so so if if you use the bottom up approach we did then then you can't insist that the waves be you know five or three they could be seven or nine or you know obviously not less than less than three but but nevertheless you can use those in the way that I that I described to construct a a series of turning points uh, at various uh, fractal levels, and then, as I say, you can those turning points can, can be used, and again, this is different than the alia wave in the alia wave you're essentially using these patterns to predict anybody who's traded for any length of time realizes that prediction is Impossible. You know it's, uh, prediction is hard, especially about the future. So what we were using this for, or what, I'm use, what I use this for, is, is not to predict. It's merely to, to provide a um, mechanical, an objective means of identifying turning points, which can then be used to draw trend lines. And, of course, this goes back to Edwards and McGee, and the problem, with, the problem with something like with standard technical analysis is, is a technician draws a trend line, but, you know, three technicians will draw the trend line in three different places. But the fractal wave algorithm draws that trend line in one place, <laughs> and it'll draw it in the same place every time. In other words, that's the whole idea. So what, what my system does is it combines, it takes... Technical, technical methodologies, shall we say, or, or ideas that are, you know, traditionally based upon subjective judgments. And it, uh, it implements those in such a way that they're, that they're mechanical or, auto, or automatic. And that, I think, is the advantage. So, uh, of course, it, it, the system itself will do things that, you know, to a technician would look irrational at times. But that's the that's the trade-off. On the other hand, what the system does is the system provides discipline, and it eliminates the possibility of second guessing, which of course is the uh, is the bane of the the technical uh, technical analyst. So the advantage to this, to get back, and this of course goes back uh, to the original days when I got into this business, was that, and, and this, and I think anyone who's anyone who was one of the early systems traders would would confirm this is that. When we first got started technical trading, it was like shooting fish in a barrel because there were very few people doing it. Most of the you know most of the people who were trading commodities were small you know small investors or people trading by the seat of their pants, and so you, you had a, an incredible you know, just by just the discipline that a, that a system provided was an incredible advantage over most of the uh, traders that were, were out there. So it turned out to be very e- It was very easy. I mean, almost any system would work. I mean, Don Shin's, you know, moving average crossover. I knew a guy who just had, who had a system based upon a moving average turning. The moving average turned up, he bought, and it turned down, he sold. So almost any system worked better than what most people were doing, which was taking the advice of their broker or just trading on their gut feel. Uh, nowadays, things are much different. Those people are gone. The industry is dominated by people, you know, by systems traders. And so, you know, it's a, much, it's a much different environment. But by the same token, you know, so one would think that, that this would all get arbitraged out over time. That is, if, if you had nothing left but, the, you know, but the big, but the... The big trend follows. Yeah, big trend followers, mm-hmm. and and certainly trend following, you know, dominates the the CTA space. You'd think they'd just all be cannibalizing themselves, and but I think uh, this gets back to what I was saying is that I'm I'm a technical trader that believes in fundamentals, and so mm-hmm. the, there's a world out there that can't be controlled or that or that's beyond the reach of of uh, you know market psychology or market right. you know market methodology, and. And I think that world, you know, is subject to to uh, forces, generally longer term forces, that are, you know, that are pretty much, you know, universal and timeless. I think that human go back behavior in history, yeah, yeah, they go back in history as far as you want to go, and we will go into the future as as far.
1: You know, I agree with all of that, Bill. And and it's interesting because there is obviously still so much resistance. I think it's fair to say by a lot of people, uh, certainly on the investor side, to to embrace this, and and you always have to, to justify, you know, why trend following works, and and uh, you know, even if it has a, a year or two of, of, of under average performance, then uh, it's like it's 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 their case for for why it has stopped working and it's never going to work again. So um, so certain things don't change. But I want to go back also on another point, which I think differentiates you a lot compared to the Managers uh, that we see out there. And maybe you can explain a little bit more of that where I'm going with this is that I know that you, or at least part of your system is not looking at parameters, meaning you're not trying to optimize a certain uh, parameter set whilst, you know, if you use moving averages or price breakouts, whatever it might be, clearly a big part of the research is really identifying the right parameter sets to use. Explain to me a little bit about that and, and, and why you, why have you chosen sort of this way of looking at it?
0: Well, of course, uh, the idea of, of data fitting has, has been the, you know, the nemesis of of anyone who 's tried to d- design systems, and so one of the attractions to the the fractal approach was that you 're dealing again with very fundamental patterns, but you 're dealing with patterns as opposed to numbers you 're dealing with sort of pictures in, in, instead of a numerical approach so in the first place, if you just the the algorithm the way that i 've described it is not a matter of of optimizing on any kind of numerical parameters, it's a matter of, of setting up a certain structure, and then, and then, in a sense, graphically y- utilizing that structure to translate that into. Uh, patterns now there certainly is um, is data fitting in the sense that you're fitting what patterns that you think are significant you know versus those that you don't you've obviously got, you've got to have some choice there and for instance trading weekly charts versus daily charts that's obviously a parameter that you've selected but but these might be numerical parameters but they've been selected on on a qualitative uh, criteria. They haven't been selected because I went through and tr- you know tried all the different possibilities and picked out the best one. It was a much broader type of of judgment that was made. So uh, the advantage again is that in in terms of uh, of designing a system, you're not really focusing. You're you're coming into it with a with an analysis that's based upon shall we say qualitative judgments about how the markets work and so on and so forth, and then that's implemented more or less directly without having to go through a, a lot of optimization and testing and so on and so forth. Now, obviously, you, you're going to backtest your, your methodology, and, and if it doesn't look like it works, you're not going to use it. So right there, you're data fitting. <laughs> Nobody uses a system that doesn't test out. You, you certainly can't avoid that kind of parameterization. Completely, but you you can certainly keep it to a minimum, and also and also avoid being deluded by it. I think the worst thing that c- comes from parameterization is is you tend to think you've got something that's a lot more, you know, say magical than is actually the case. Now, I do. You know, I do have some parameters in my system, but once again, these are not optimized parameters. They're parameters that have, fa- that, that have fallen out of the patterns that, that form. So, for instance, if, if you think about these zigzags, if you have a certain zigzag pattern and then you take a, a larger scale zigzag where you've got a zigzag made of say, those zigzags, you typically are going to have, that's the, the duration of those zigzags is going to be about three times the duration of the shorter zigzag, okay? And, the, and then the next level up, it's going to be about three times that. So you actually have some parameters that tend to fall out, of, uh, fall out of your patterns, but they're not parameters that you just, you know, went and tried everything. They're parameters that, that uh, actually are a result of uh, up, up, applying, applying your algorithm. And again, I don't vary that. So if I have a, so for instance, I might use a pattern, uh, you know, a 20, a 27 week pattern. Well, I don't, I, I don't use, I use 27 weeks everywhere. I don't use 26 and 20, 28 and, you know, that sort of thing. I just, you know, because it, once again, the parameter has has come out of the, uh, of the patterns. It's not, it's not something that's been independently, uh, arrived or optimized. Sure.
1: Now, of course, we're going to talk more about this later on, um, but when it comes to risk management, though, parameters are, are difficult not to apply, you know, how much should I risk, etc., cetera, et cetera, and, 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 and obviously people usually come to, to these um, conclusions based on, on research and, and so on and so forth. How do you just sort of broadly uh, frame that in terms of just the parameter side of things not you know exactly the risk management we'll talk about that a little bit later
0: well yeah but risk management's pretty much common sense and everybody's risk management is the same anybody who's you know the the risk management is driven by the by the uh the realities of the business and And to some extent, of course, it's a matter of choice in other words if you in other words i've select, uh, I've decided to operate in a certain so we say uh level of leverage, and you find that the level I operate in is probably towards the high end among ctas uh if you get much higher than that, then you're out of business. But most CTAs as they get as they get big, they tend to they tend to cut their leverage and so the typical CTA is probably about half of what I of what I use. But again, those are that to me is pretty standard. In other words, I can I can just glance at somebody's performance record or, or whatever, just basic stats, and, and I know I know what uh, region of risk or, or of exposure that they're operating in. And if you look at those people, you know, they got the people who are established and have been around for a while, they're all in the same ballpark. You look at me versus Don or, you know, various other people with similar uh, risk, for, you know, with similar, so shall we say, standard deviations, uh, monthly standard deviations or similar drawdowns or whatever, you know, we're all doing the same thing. We all have got the, about the same uh, margin to equity and... So I, I think that to some extent i don 't money management 's uh, another issue you know, there's once you, your system generates a you know, a series of trades which may or may not be correlated uh, typically you 're going to have you know about forty percent winners and sixty percent losers and you know on and on and that 's why I say that pe- different people have different systems and certainly from a marketing point of view it 's nice to say talk about how special your system is. But you're really pretty much driven by what the markets are doing and what they offer you in terms of possibilities. And you know, someone who's you know a well-designed system is going to do a reasonably go- good job of capturing what the mar- market offers. But it's you know, it's more of a either you you know either you've got one or you don't. It's not a matter of, of that the, there's a lot of. A lot of distinction in terms of what the what the outcome is and once again the outcome is is pretty much driven by the level of the, the amount of leverage that you, that you take and if, if you normalize to that leverage then you know anybody who's been around for a time for a long time is gonna have a pretty much the same performance
1: I want to jump to the next topic very shortly. I just have some, maybe a little bit philosophical uh, questions I, I wanted just to, to, to ask you. And, I mean, when you look at back at, at your career, which, which you may do from, from time to time, do you think back at, at this as some kind of, of quest you've been on to sort of perfect how to exploit the fractal nature of markets or is there something else that that drives you, in, in, if, if I can phrase it that way?
0: Well, you know, everybody's got different motivations. I, I suppose my uh, when I first started out in, uh, in this business, one of the things that attracted me to it was the, the idea that I could, uh, you know, make a living, uh, you know, live where I wanted to yeah. uh, and surf a lot. I was really, I've really more or less, uh, you know, surfing's been the uh, sort of primary uh, Determinant of, of, you know, sort of where I've lived in, in my life, and so I saw this as a way of of uh, capitalizing on my, shall we say, my education and my experience, in order to uh, have uh, a lot of leisure time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't think, and I wasn't thinking in terms of, boy, how much money can I make? I was thinking sure. more in terms of how much. How time can much you get can on I the have? waves?
1: Yeah. Sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and. For I think most of my career, I was that was that's been my primary focus. Now the problem is it's hard to, you know, if you're in a business that's about money, it, it's hard to ignore it. You know, if you're a social worker or something, you can sort of ignore money and you know get the the satisfaction that comes from doing your work. But if you're in the money business, you know, the, to some extent, uh, money is how you keep score. I, I think what uh, you know, if I look back, uh, essentially my. Judgment is I'm probably a, a pretty good trader, but I'm I'm a lousy businessman. I haven't really done a very good job of of uh, of utilizing uh, you know whatever skills I've had in terms of developing uh, developing a business. And as I say, part of it's just been neglect, and and part of it has been I've relied I think largely on third-party marketing, which uh, tends to be fickle. And so I've, I've had ups and downs. I've had periods where I've raised a lot of money, and then it tends to, if my performance tapers off, then the money goes away. And that's just the nature of the business. You've really, you know, if, if I had it to do over again, shall we say from a business view, I would have taken uh, much more responsibility for my own marketing. Because I think that's how other firms of the same generation uh, like, you know, Dunn or, or uh, John Henry or people like that, I think their success is primarily due to the fact that they've been successful in marketing and they've, you know, taken responsibility for that as opposed to farming it and trying to farm it out on, you know, on, on third-party marketers.
1: Sure. No, no, that's true. Now, we're going to leave the, the so the, the the background a little bit, but there's one question I simply can't avoid having to ask you because it is so clear from from how you explain it and that is the importance of not serving the markets but serving the waves in the ocean and that is why why is that so important to you and 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 how did that all got started because it seems to be something that has stayed with you through and through
0: Anybody who's surfed realizes how addictive it can be, <laughs> and, and I'm not the only one who's <laughs> who's, who's uh, you know who, who's uh, found that to yeah. be a compelling. And, and of course, it's not just surfing. There are There, there are also there's ski bums and and golfers. And there's people who do all sorts of activities and not necessarily you know sports, but surfing becomes something that more than a sport. Uh, it just is really. Uh, an engaging uh, endeavor that, you know, it's man against nature and a lot of other aspects to it. I spent years surfing, uh, surf breaks in Northern California where there was nobody on the beach and nobody in the water. So, you know, there are a lot of really attractive aspects of it. Plus it, you know, you get to, it it inspires you to travel around to various places, inspired me to live in Western Australia for 13 years, uh, which is where I where I got started with my fractal wave system. It's a very engaging uh, sport. Yeah. I might also say that even from the very beginning, I had absolutely no desire to live in Chicago or New York and to engage and you know, to become a pit trader or any of that sort of thing. To me, that was just nuts. And, and, I, and I justified that partially by saying that I wanted to be as far from the markets as possible, so I wasn't influenced by that kind of groupthink. You know, the reason you know, one of the, the main reason for being a systems trader is to insulate you from your own bad psychology, shall we say. And it's if if you're being if you're surrounded by people who are you know, are surrounded by an environment of, of sort of opinions on markets and then it's hard to uh, to resist that. So, uh, in order to insulate me from that, I've done two things: one, I'm a systems trader, and two, I've stayed away from that, you know, from those places. But the the difficulty with that, again, looking at it from a business point of view, uh, if you want to raise money, the place to be is Chicago or New York, not Western Australia, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. As I'm sure you can tell by now, my knowledge of surfing is is very very limited. But but uh, since I since we all meet uh, a few sharks in our business, I also have to ask you as a final question: whether you in your surfing ever met any sharks in, in the water?
0: I've never seen. I've never actually seen a shark in the water. Okay. You know, except when I'm been scuba diving yeah, or yeah. that sure, sort sure. of thing. But sur- as a surfer. Wow. Uh, but I've certainly. I mean, when I lived in. In San Francisco, that that's that area is called the uh, Red Triangle mm-hmm. between uh, Bodega Bay, the Farallones, and Monterey. It's it's probably the sharkiest place in the world. And in Australia, where I live in Australia, is pretty sharky also. So they're around, but you know, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. Right. And. Uh, you know, it's surprising. I mean, not only are they around, but they're <laughs> they're, they're surprisingly abundant, surprisingly close. And yeah. I think the the uh, what you learn. One of the things that I don't know you can just be eternally thankful for is that we're not on their menu. Right. Right. And yeah. it's the same with killer whales. I mean, gee, <laughs> you know, if killer whales wanted to eat you, sure. you'd be in <laughs> bad trouble. But for some reason, they just don't have any. Any any desire yeah. to do that, so yeah. that's one of the the blessings of, sure. of of being a surfer.
1: Well, let's hope it stays like that. Now, today, of course, we're going to talk a little bit more about the the global diversified program, which is the name of, of of your strategy. And also, it's interesting that of that it. I guess it's this year that you will be celebrating twenty five years uh, anniversary. If uh, if my math is is correct, so I want to ask you a little bit about sort of. Knowing that what you wanted to achieve was also the location, independence, and, and so on and so forth, uh, the fact that you've successfully run this now for, for 25 years, uh, you've automated it to, to a large extent, you're clearly not doing everything your, yourself. So, so what kind of people have you surrounded your, yourself with in, in terms of organization in order to, to, to do this uh, on, on, a, on a day-to-day basis?
0: Well, from an operational point of view, I pretty much did it myself uh, until, in terms of the trading, until until about five years ago or so. And now I've got someone who does most of the, the trading. I've I've got what might be called a virtual office. I don't have an actual office space, but I work from home, and then my trader works, uh, you know, out of Albuquerque. And then I have a, I have a, a programmer that's worked with me for a long time. That, uh, you know, that's also remote. So uh, in addition to that, my trading system set up on a remote server. Uh, and this, is, of course, is primarily for security reasons. And also, you know, the thing's got multiple backups and mirrored disks and all this. So we just log in using remote desktop to, to run this, to run the system. But, you know, the system itself is, is once it was programmed back in 1990 or 19. It's been virtually unchanged. Uh, it's, and so that it hasn't required, uh, you know, uh, that is, there hasn't been any kind of maintenance that is done is mostly done is mostly by adjusting the portfolios and various options, shall we say, that can be set, flags that can be set. But the program itself is, is, is pretty stable. The same is true with probably about, Fifteen years ago, I had uh, I had a program written to do my back office and to autom- and to automatically read uh, brokerage statements and you know compare that with with my records and do the do that that matching that goes on. So the, so the the end result of that is that it takes very little time to to run the system and do the back office and the whole thing. Maybe a half an hour a day, typically, and a couple hours on the weekend, and it can be done by Anybody who is reasonably, who is competent and diligent, and doesn't require a lot of technical, you know, technical skills, uh, it just matter involves discipline and and persistence.
1: So clearly, having done it in, in a in a certain way. Uh, of running your business uh, for for a, a long period of time even though there's been obviously some changes 5 years ago the other impression that i got uh, was that you do want to grow the business you know from from here do you think that in doing so do you think that requires some some changes uh, on your part do you think that Um, investors nowadays require a certain setup. You, You kind of alluded to it in terms of location, but I'm also thinking now, sort of organization, infrastructure. I mean, you've been regulated by the authorities since the day that they Got founded, you know, many many years ago. So everybody from the outside can see that you know how to run a business. But still, uh, do you think that it requires some some changes on your side to to attract more assets?
0: Well, that's a good question. I know. On the one hand, I mean, I certainly have, uh, you know, I certainly have people that open accounts with me and are, you know, and and most of the most of my clients uh, currently in in the. Recent past have been sophisticated investors who who understand the you know understand the business. They don't seem to have any concerns about uh, the way my operations run. I've I've certainly got a lot of excess capacity, in the sense that I could run you know a much larger a much larger uh, AUM with my present structure without really changing anything significantly. Obviously, beyond that, beyond maybe 30 million or so, I might have to start beefing up and maybe, maybe even get an office, but everything would pretty much run the same. So, and as far as my software goes, it's got, you know, huge unused capacity. That is, I could trade, you know, I could trade much larger volumes and handle much larger volumes, you know, through the back office with existing software. So, I'm certainly not Capacity limited. I think the limitations have to do with marketing. I think as time goes by, people have become—or uh, I shouldn't say people. I should say probably inst- more institutions, shall we say, have uh, become uh, more tick box oriented. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's a, that's a good point. That is, that is, and again, there's there's it can be justified. They've got everyone's got somebody to answer to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, the fact that I don't, you know, don't have a formal office and that I don't have a lot of employees, uh, you know, probably, and that I don't have a compliance officer and all that sort of thing.
1: But a lot of these things, of course, uh, you know, can be outsourced, even, you know, they, they can be virtual. That's one thing, but they, they could also be outsourced. But there is one question I… I, I...
0: Well, I, I outsource my I outsource my performance calculations and my… That level of, of accounting, which is which is highly technical that's and that also provides a certain amount of credibility in terms of my track record in other words, I have n a v doing that, and so it's not like uh, people are might suspect that i'm you know fudging my performance.
1: There's one question though, Bill, that I I, I have to ask, and, and obviously being a little bit, bit bit frank about it. But as you've explained, people would have guessed now that you're not in in sort of the youngest part of of the CTA station. <laughs> Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.